0: You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil. Coal. Hydro. Nuclear Nuclear energy. energy. Natural gas.
1: Energy infrastructure. Solar panels, Wind turbines. A lot of the real challenges of this transition are eminently predictable.
0: The everything or 100% renewables to me is a bit of a man and it maybe goes further than it really needs to go. And so I think about, well, what if it was 90%, 90% electric or 90% renewables? And I think a lot of things are possible. For December 21st, 2022, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Well, it's our final show in this tumultuous year, and looking back over the topics that we've covered, I'm struck by how much more real the energy transition has become this year. All over the world, we're finally seeing substantial commitments to build the solutions of the energy transition, as well as firm moves to divest from and stop financing the deployment of new fossil-fueled infrastructure. To be sure, some of those efforts were the result of Russia's using its oil and gas supply as a weapon. But the U.S. also allocated more direct funding to the solutions than ever before through the IRA and IAJA bills by a big margin, with many other countries now developing their own major plans to fund the energy transition, even if they're mainly doing it to remain competitive. Now, there's no doubt that we are in the early stages of the transition and still have a very long way to go. And yes, we are still falling far short of the action we need to take to limit the warming of our home to 2 degrees C, let alone 1.5 degrees. But I think it's safe to say that 2022 saw more of the world finally moving in the right direction and making substantive commitments than ever before. To wrap up our coverage of the energy transition this year, I thought it appropriate to have a look at some recent research out of the U.S. National Renewable Energy Laboratory, or NREL, that explores some scenarios for getting to a 100% clean power grid. As you'll hear in this episode, NREL has produced two major studies in recent months, one that looks at various pathways to a 100% clean power grid, and another that specifically looks at how we might meet the last 10% of the need, which some observers believe will be the hardest part but we won't simply discuss the scenarios and what they say. We'll also consider what they don't say and what our modeling can and cannot tell us about how the future grid might evolve. And it's a fairly technical discussion, which is why I've given it a geek rating of 9. So if you are relatively new to the subject of how we can get to a completely emissions-free power grid, you might want to listen to some of our more accessible episodes on the subject first, like episodes 20, 74, 95, 111, 131, and 178. Our guide to these studies is one of their authors, grid power researcher Paul Denholm, who you may remember from his previous appearance on the show back in episode 58 on solar plus storage systems. Paul has been researching grid power at NREL for over 15 years and has co-authored over 100 articles related to renewable energy integration, so he has an excellent understanding of what grid power modeling can and can't do, as well as a keen grasp of the state of the art in the energy transition. Not only does he explain what this new research says, he also addresses many of the mistaken claims made by opponents and skeptics of the energy transition. He has a very deep grasp of the material we'll be discussing today, and I know that you will find his perspective illuminating. Then, in the news segment of this episode, we'll take a look at the world's newest and largest floating wind farm, we'll salute the pivot to offshore wind for a major pension fund, we'll note a failed bid by some fossil fuel companies to get compensation for having to shut down their polluting power plants, and we'll applaud three new developments in support of the energy transition in France. But before we go to the interview... Announcements, announcements, announcements... announcements. announcements. By popular demand, we have decided to put episode 182, our seventh anniversary show, in front of the paywall to make it available to everyone, including non-subscribers. It offers a not-too-technical review of some of the major issues in the energy transition right now, so it should serve as a good introduction to the topic for new listeners and give non-subscribers a taste of what they're missing. We're also offering a holiday special. Through the end of the year, annual subscribers can buy an annual subscription for a friend for just $50. That's 12 months for the price of 10. You may have already seen this offer announced in our recent newsletter, but if not, you can take advantage of it by logging into our website and going to the show notes for this episode, where you'll find the link to a special form where you can buy it. This offer is available only to our annual subscribers and can only be used to buy a one-year gift subscription for a non-subscriber. And remember, this offer is only good through December 31st, US Pacific Time, so don't delay. Finally, we'd like to offer a warm welcome to our latest group subscribers. ETH Zurich is a university for science and technology based in Zurich, Switzerland. The Library of Parliament is the Knowledge Center for the Parliament of Canada. And Evergreen Energy is a utility system operator and advisor based in St. Paul, Minnesota. Welcome all. We're so pleased to have you listening to the show. And now our interview with Paul Denholm recorded November 29th, 2022. So let's bring him back into the conversation now. Welcome back, Paul, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you, happy to be here. So over the past several months, you and your colleagues have published a pair of papers that attempted to give us some guidance about how the power grid might evolve in the US. The first published in August looked at various paths to a 100% clean power grid by 2035. And the second, published in September, looked at some of the potential options for meeting the so-called last 10%, that is the final 10% of grid power supply, after we have presumably met the first 90% of the need with renewables and nuclear generators or some other clean solution. Together, I think these papers give us much to think about in terms of how the grid of the future might evolve or what it might look like. So I have a lot of questions for you about what these papers say and maybe more precisely what they don't say. But I think I'd just like to start with a pretty simple question, which is what does this kind of modeling attempt to do? Because I don't think its objective is actually to forecast what the grid of the future will look like. Great place to start.
1: So I think there's really two goals to this type of modeling exercise. The first is really what is our best guess? under current policy in terms of what is actually the likely least cost mix of resources. So even though we don't really say we're doing forecasts, I think that's relatively close to what we're trying to do. We're trying to represent what would be the most likely mix of least cost resources under current policies. And that gets to what we publish every year called the NREL standard scenario. So if you kind of look around on the web for NREL standard scenarios, we publish this every year, and it is our forecast of what the mix of resources going forward might be under current policies as well as some kind of policy sensitivity scenarios. So it does try to represent, okay, given the current cost of technology, the projected future cost of technologies, what would kind of a neutral omniscient kind of person develop as the mix of resources for meeting the nation's electricity supply? The second goal of this type of work is really looking at okay, what happens if there are significant changes in policy or what would it take to achieve some certain goal? And the 100% by 2035 study is more of this type, looking at a pretty substantial change in policy in terms of achieving 100% clean electricity by 2035. And then just saying, Okay, what would it actually take? How much wind? How much solar? What is the likely mix of resources? Where would it go? So it's that kind of mix of goals. And from there, we kind of do a bunch of sophisticated modeling, but we can talk about that if you'd like more.
0: Okay, so let's have a look at this new paper titled Examining Supply Side Options to Achieve 100% Clean Electricity by 2035. There are four primary scenarios in it. The first is called the All options Scenario, and that assumes that the cost and performance of all zero emissions technologies, including direct air capture of CO2, continues to improve. In the other three scenarios, the direct air capture never becomes economic enough to scale. In the second scenario, called Infrastructure Renaissance, that assumes an expansion of transmission capacity. The constrained scenario assumes that higher costs constrain both generation and transmission, which results essentially in an expansion of nuclear power. And the final scenario, called no CCS, assumes that no carbon capture and storage or CCS technologies become economic or ever get to scale. Now, all four of these scenarios lead to a 100% clean power sector by 2035. Even with 66% higher demand, from electrifying transportation and buildings on the way to a net zero emissions economy by 2050. So how does defining the scenarios in this way help us to understand our options in the future? So one of the first things
1: that we decided to do when we did the study was to try and not make a central scenario. We realized that no one would ever agree on what kind of the primary scenario should be. So that's one of the reasons why we decided to do four separate scenarios. And yes, they do a kind of what-if exploration of some of the potential different pathways. So for instance, CCS is a really huge lever. So when we talk about, okay, what are the different technologies that could be used? CCS is one of those that could really change the outcome of what a clean electricity system looks like. Likewise... The constrained scenario, I think, kind of unfortunately represents what might happen if we just can't streamline the siting and permitting, particularly for new transmission resources. So those kind of reflect two examples of the types of things we wanted to look at. And the resulting mixes really reflect these restrictions or constraints. So for instance, the no-CCS cases, that really requires a really heavy dependence on hydrogen, for example, whereas the constrained case where it can't build transmission, it depends more on solar because more solar can be deployed without transmission, plus the constrained cases where we get a really massive deployment of new nuclear capacity. So these scenarios let us explore these what-if cases and also kind of politically make people happy to to make sure that there is a potential role for all these technologies if some of the cost and performance goals can be met.
0: When I look at the way these scenarios are constructed, it occurs to me that they are almost like a like a foil or like the negative of a photograph or something. It sort of defines like, if you blocked out all these other things, this is what you would have left. (laughs) Is that a fair way to look at it, do you think?
1: I think so. I mean, we tried to do at least some positive as well as negative. So that's why, for instance, we did the infrastructure renaissance case. What happens if you can build more transmission? But realistically, not all of these things are going to happen. One of the things that it's really important to understand is that while we have lots of different pathways, I mean, look, it would be great if we achieve low-cost small modular reactors. We get superconducting transmission DC cables that can be placed underground. We got low-cost seasonal storage. And I'd love it if all those things happen because my primary goal is, as a technology-neutral analyst, is to figure out which mix of technologies can achieve reliable least-cost electricity. And I don't really have any preference over which one wins from a policy standpoint. I just want clean electricity. But we do have to recognize the fact that not all of these technologies are probably going to succeed. So we do need to make sure that we understand the implications of what happens if, if we can achieve low-cost nuclear power, for instance.
0: Right. Or if you can't have a big expansion of generation and transmission, then that leaves nuclear as one of the few remaining options. Or if you can't deploy that more transmission capacity, then maybe that opens up more opportunity for distributed renewables or other DERs, right? That's
1: right. And transmission is really one of the biggest factors in the study we really identified. And that's Largely driven by just the fantastic wind resources we have here in the U.S. If you can build transmission to tap into those wind resources, it just makes things so much easier and so much cheaper.
0: Yeah. Well, now, this is a big report. It's 161 pages, just packed with data and charts and analysis, and it's kind of easy to get lost in the details, but I'll try to pull out a few salient points, or things that jumped out at me anyway. And one of those was in Appendix A, which actually showed that across nearly all 142 sensitivity cases that you evaluated after you took these four core scenarios and then applied all these different sensitivities to it, Both installed capacity and actual generation in 2035 are overwhelmingly dominated by onshore wind and solar in all 142 sensitivity cases, except for those few that are in what's called the no policy cases. And those are based on the reference scenario, which assumes that no constraints are applied on carbon. Now, I'm pretty confident that there will continue to be constraints on carbon. (laughs) That's kind of the whole concept of the energy transition. So, I'm happy to ignore those cases for our purposes today. So what causes those two technologies to become so dominant in this modeling?
1: The simple answer is because they're the cheapest source of clean electricity, yeah. even when accounting for the variability. So. So we often get pushback on, oh, but the wind doesn't always blow. And I once threatened to my colleagues that I should change my signature line for my emails to something like, yes, we at NREL do actually understand that the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. (laughs) But look, we account for that in the modeling. I mean, that's what we do. I study variability. I'm a reliability power system engineer. So I study the variability of all these different resources. And we account for that in the modeling. But even when you account for all that in the modeling, the fact that the sun doesn't shine at night. They're just the cheapest clean energy technologies. And of course, we take into account what you have to do to back those resources up. And that's language you always like to use because that's not, not the most technically precise language. But if you use terms like backup from storage and things like that, even if you account for all of that... They're just cheaper than everything else. Now, one of the things that's important, and my colleagues who work internationally always have to remind me is, because I only work on the US power grid, is the US has some of the best solar and wind resources on the planet. Our solar resources in the Southwest, I think only parts of Chile really have better solar resources. Our wind resources, we can have 50% plus capacity factors from our wind resources in the Midwest now. Hmm. So even accounting for additional costs associated with storage and transmission, they're just incredibly cost-effective resources. Right.
0: I didn't see a specific amount of capacity or generation modeled for offshore wind in this report, and I wanted to highlight that because we were just talking about onshore. But it looks like it's actually a very modest amount coming out in this model. I mean, certainly well short of the 30 gigawatts of capacity that the Biden administration has targeted for deployment by 2030. Why is that? And how would you characterize maybe the uncertainty range around offshore wind in this model? Sure.
1: There's a lot of uncertainty because unlike onshore wind, offshore wind is not as mature. We do have deployments primarily in Europe, but increasing a little bit in the US. We actually build between 38 and 58 gigawatts of offshore wind. So all of the cases build at least as much as the administration's targets. The primary advantage of offshore wind, of course, is it's closer to load centers. The primary disadvantage is it's still expensive. It's just a lot cheaper to build onshore wind than offshore wind. So I think that would be a case where if we get cost reductions and it is a little bit more difficult to build transmission, you would see more offshore wind. So I think, again, we use fairly conservative modeling throughout the effort. And so maybe using conservative estimates for offshore wind costs resulted in lesser deployment than we could actually see if we achieve some of the cost targets we have.
0: Okay. Well, that's a pretty straightforward answer. So I noted that geothermal electricity also continues to play a pretty modest role in this modeling with capacity only increasing by like three to five gigawatts by 2035. But that's as contrasted with almost 2000 gigawatts of new wind and solar over the same period. So why does this model expect geothermal electricity to remain such a small part of the solution set? Yeah, that's a really good question An important one. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Norway's first and the world's largest floating wind farm generated its first power in mid-November, according to its developer, Norwegian energy firm Equinor. The Highwind Tampen Wind Farm is located around 140 kilometers, or 87 miles, off the coast of Norway in the North Sea, in water depths ranging from 260 to 300 meters. It will actually be used to provide power to Equinor's Gulfax and Snora offshore oil and gas fields, where it is expected to meet around 35% of their electricity demand and cut CO2 emissions from the fields by around 200,000 tons per year. Originally announced in 2018 and expected to be complete in 2023, the wind farm will consist of 11 8-megawatt turbines for a total nameplate capacity of 88 megawatts. Equinor said the turbines at Highwind Tampen were installed on a floating concrete structure with a joint mooring system. Equinor also claims to have built the world's first floating wind farm, a five-turbine 30-megawatt facility called Wind Scotland, in 2017. And while I have some mixed feelings about celebrating a wind farm that will just produce more oil and gas, the oil and gas industry's expertise with such large floating infrastructure in deep water is what makes floating wind farms possible. And those deep water floating wind turbines are expected to generate a significant share of the renewable power that will make the energy transition successful in the coming decades. More floating wind farms are now under consideration, including one by RWE Renewables and Kansai Electric Power Offshore of Japan, one by Norway's Stotcraft off the coast of Aberdeen, Scotland, and three major offshore wind projects in Australia, as we have reported previously on this show. And as we discussed in episode 179, the Biden administration has set a target of deploying 15 gigawatts of floating offshore wind capacity by 2035 and launched the so-called floating offshore wind shot, which aims to reduce the cost of floating technologies by over 70% by 2035. (music) Item 2. But at 88 megawatts, Highwind Tampen's claim to being the world's largest offshore wind farm may not stand for long. ABP, the largest pension fund in the Netherlands, with about 500 billion euros. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.